cranky old guys and what they know. The Lean Braves reporting for duty. Your source for fitness and food education with a noble purpose. Fasten your seatbelts, youngsters, and hold on to your carrots. You're listening to the Lean Braves radio show at theleanberets.com. We are Avengers of Health. Welcome, Braves. I'm Ron Jones with my good friend, Michael Campy, and we are the Lean Braves. And uh, Michael, thanks, and welcome to Lean Braves for the very first time. Well, thanks a lot, Ron. You had a great idea uh, last week. You sent me an email about cranky old guys, and we've been talking about doing a podcast for a while, and and uh, we realized, hey, we should just do a show on that topic alone. <laughs> Let's go for it. And what the hell do they know? Like, what do these old people know? And so... Uh, to kind of bring people into the fold on this, one of my mentors is over 80, and he looked at me when I was up at his place recently, and he said, I'm 85 years old, I can say what I want, and I said, and I'm over 50, and I'll listen. You know, so there's the difference between uh, some people like myself and Michael and others, we're willing to listen to people that are older, because I don't want to go through the same stuff they went through. <laughs> I'd like right. to learn from their wisdom and and not recreate the wheel and just get it rolling again, so... What would you like to start with, Michael? It's going to be a fun show and lively. We're not dead yet. <laughs> but we will be soon. But we will be soon, which is another... Uh, Michael and I are both classically educated, also in literature, so we're going to bring some things in that some of the fitness people might not understand because they're they're fairly stupid at times. So uh, Memento Mori comes out of literature, and that's a reminder of death. And back in the medieval period and beyond, there was little skulls in the house, and they were all around, and it was a reminder that no one lives uh, forever. It doesn't matter how much money, power, and six-pack abs you have, we're all going to die and be worm food. Get over it. And before well, you I know a, it, we'll be down. I have a T-shirt that was a group that I started called Old People with Attitude. <laughs> and underneath that, it said, I'm old. Um, and the biggest objection older people had with that t-shirt was the word old really and that shocked me i thought you should be proud of who you are Mm -hmm. well this is a cultural thing right yeah especially in fitness and for those of you just tuning in that haven't listened to us or you don't know michael and i we're going to be talking a lot about fitness today but we're not just talking about fitness we're talking about life because if you're just thinking of fitness and physique and and six-pack abs and all that superficial crap, then you've really missed the boat. You don't have a clue what it's all about. And so, yeah, we'll get into some fitness, but it's it's going to be a lot deeper than that. Right, and possibly discussing the idea of the compartmentalization right. of fitness, where people put it in a little box, and they check off the box, went to, went to the gym. Mm-hmm. On Sunday, they check off the box, went to the church, mm-hmm. and they separate everything. And the idea that fitness is a part of a much larger picture has been lost. Well, that goes back to ancient Greece. You know, there was a comment recently by um, oh, one of the political candidates. I can't remember who it was at this point. It doesn't really matter. But they talked about how America is the greatest nation in the existence of you know mankind. And I thought, well, that's a fairly ignorant statement in so many levels. Because if you look at ancient Greece, we're not even close, you know. But anyway, um, yeah, fitness. Wow, what a what a trip this industry is. Uh, as one of my friends uh, mentioned a couple of years ago, it's very polluted. And it, you know, we're both historians to, in some aspect to the fitness and physical education world, and we know that history repeats. So none of this is really new. I mean, there were there were snake oil salesmen in the 1800s and beyond. There's always been people that didn't want to do the real work to get fit and healthy. But my God, with social media and the internet and uh, the scams going on, it's uh, this would be a fun show because we get to say what we want because we're over fifty, and yeah. uh, I, I frankly don't care how many likes, shares, fans I get from this show. I need to say what I want to say because I'm over fifty and I've earned the right to do that, and so have you. Right, and but do feel free to send us money if you're inclined to that. Absolutely, if you want the real stuff, you know. We yeah, can. We tr- is, we're is, in Los yeah. Angeles. Fly in. We'll train. We'll train, and uh, you'll 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 not only walk away moving better, but here's the big thing: you'll walk away being smarter and more physically literate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this this kind of brings up a, a 
a point, Michael, and I'm sure you've, you know, you've danced with this as well over the years and fitness is that oftentimes people want a program. They want a routine. They want sets and reps. And I, this is a, you know, I, uh, there are very few people that train like I do, meaning I don't use any kind of program scheme, none. I train completely 100% by feel. And that's the that's Bruce Lee model. Yeah, it's a it's a big idea that most people wouldn't understand. But I I describe it when I'm working with my clients that I have a tool bag, and everything in that tool bag is good, and it doesn't matter what I pull out, it's going to help me. And if something doesn't work in the tool bag, I toss it out; it doesn't stay. Mm-hmm. And well, though, how many sets and reps? Well, I train by feel. So if I happen to pull out this tool out of my tool bag or this method, depending on how I feel that day. That's what I do. How many minutes, sets, reps, intensity, whatever. And then people will say, well, I can't do Exactly, you can't do that because you're physically illiterate and you don't understand. And that's what's been lost because 100 years ago, people could easily do that. Mm-hmm. Were there, and what, that idea, the, the fluidity, right. that approach, um, in a world where people are obsessed with categorization. And Marketing and numbers. branding and, oh my God, ad nauseum, it, you know. <laughs> oh, I hope Poor people baby. get upset, you know, because one of the things, if you want things to change, someone has to be willing to take a few darts <laughs> and bleed mm-hmm. a little bit to, to and at, at sometimes piss people off, but at least they're, at least they're thinking about it, even if they're angry. You know, when I interviewed Jack Lane for my master's thesis, he told me, get ready to be called every name in the book. He goes, I used to be six feet tall, but I've been beaten down to five, I think he was five, six because of all the insults and names I've been called and, you know. And if you follow Jacqueline's career, I mean, he, he, you know, a lot of people made fun of him and that, but he just kept moving forward and, and calling it like it was. And he also told me, tell people the truth. If they're half dead, let them know. He was really a no-nonsense guy. He was a very positive dude, but he wasn't afraid to get out on the edge a little bit. Mm-hmm. But anyway. Well, there was a woman, um, a writer named Dorothy Allison. Mm-hmm. Wrote a little book called One or Two Things I Know for Sure. Mm-hmm. Although I'm not always quite so sure. <laughs> and one of the quotes in that book was, "Change when it comes cracks everything open." Mm. And the idea is that if I mean it was like when they introduced the printing press, right? It didn't just create a world plus the printing press; it created a whole new world, right? And when you introduce change into your life, it doesn't just—it's not just your life plus exercise or your life plus literature, it's your, it's a completely new life, or it should be. Mm-hmm. Beyond the physique, beyond yeah. the uh, how many pounds can I bench press or whatever, how fast mm-hmm. can I run. Absolutely. There's got to be something deeper to this. I mean, there's got to be more meaning to this whole gym thing, you know, um, because if, if, if you have a classical sense of time and the memento mori and... Um, and that we're all going to become worm food in a short amount of time, there's got to be more to it than just, you know, looking good, because that all fades. I don't care who you are. Even Jacqueline died, you know, so um, there's got to be something deeper to that. Um, you had some funny stories. Um, one of the things I want to bring up that Michael mentioned pre-show was uh, some advice he got in swimming from one of his coaches about how you train at what um, ages. Can you can you uh, kind of recite that? That was a great share I'd like people to know about. Yeah, well, he said, from when you're born to when you're 25, mm-hmm. you can do pretty much anything you want right. and get away with it. Mm-hmm. From when you're 25 to 35, you have to start thinking about it. Right. And over 35, you have two paths. You can either choose to start doing something about what you've done to yourself over the previous 40 years, mm-hmm. or you can choose to ignore it. Mm. And everything that you've done up to that point is going to come back to haunt you, and it's going to come back exponentially. Well, this so is that. Get the, I mean, your path is either decrease the arena that you function in, or actually start doing something to correct those issues. So let's take a shot at the fitness industry because so much of it today is driven by people twenty-five or mm-hmm. under, right? Mm-hmm. So what the hell do you know at 25? I mean, there are a few people out there that are pretty savvy at 25, but, I mean, they're, they're less than 1%, right? So mm-hmm. 
Um, look at who's driving the industry and who's in the photographs and and marketing and all all of this and that and and realize that they haven't lived long enough to really understand much of anything. And I and this is going to piss a few people off, and I hope I sincerely hope that it does. But it's taken me over twenty years uh, in the industry working my butt off just to be, become what I would consider uh, a decent beginner. And so I've had people say, well, that really is offensive. Are you going to, you know, people are going to get depressed. They're not going to want to do anything. Hey, that's on them, dude. I'm going to tell you the truth. The truth is I'm just a beginner, and even my teachers and mentors have said they're just beginning. So don't give me this crap that you go to a weekend certification, you're an expert. That's ridiculous. And until we get past that, we're not going to really improve as a culture in America. I don't know. I can't speak about the rest of the world too much, but I do know what's happening here and what's happening, and it's ridiculous. I don't know who said it, but there was one guy that was criticizing America. Mm -hmm. Not in a bad way, but in a good way. And someone said, well, how can you say that about America? What about the rest of the world? And he said, I speak of America because it is of America that I know. Mm -hmm. And it's the same situation with us. We're speaking of this because this is what we know. Right. And we know know that the branding and marketing, that's that's become... A global issue, um, mm-hmm. you know. I think of a recent example of people trying to brand crawling, you know, and they're, you know, I mean, I look as, as you know, Michael, you know, I look through these books from World War II and beyond. They've got all these primitive pattern movements in there and crawling, and you know, mm-hmm. and, and then people are trying to copyright and brand. It's like this is just ridiculous, you know. I'm just not having any more of it because I'm, I'm a cranky old guy. I can say what I want. <laughs> well, it goes back to the idea of categorization. Right. I mean, um, you take something like solar energy. Mm-hmm. It's not prevalent because it can't be packaged and sold. You wake up every morning, you walk outside, and there's sun. Mm-hmm. And that can't be put into a, a, a bag and sold to you at the grocery store. So right. that's why it's not more prevalent. And the idea that someone would take something like crawling or primitive patterns they can't sell it until they give it a name. Mm-hmm. And once they give it a name, then they can, you know, claim authorship. They can uh, stake out their territory and start selling it to you. Yeah, I understand people have to make a living. But, you know, back in the day, you know, if you, if you look at somebody like Bonnie Pruden, who had a brand and a great reputation and many books and products and things like that, but her workshops— or seminars, or whatever they were called, you know, in the in the 60s and 70s, um, were education-based, meaning, you know, people would come in for th- up to five days and work with her and her staff just to become educated, physically educated, and be better people. There was no certification. You know, you just went in and you learned. And so I think that's what's missing, because you know, I've been criticized for not doing more branding and marketing, this and that, and having a certification program and a lot of the uh, vintage methods that I teach and use. But my thing is, I just want to work with people that want to come in and learn. You know, if your ego's in the way to the point where you have to have a certification in two days, and you have to be called an expert or a, a foremost authority on whatever it is I'm going to teach you, I don't want you in my class, and I don't want to work with you, you know? And if I don't teach anybody, that's fine. I'll, I'll be doing it myself. I might be by yeah. myself in the park, but that's okay. And it, believe me, there's been hundreds, if not thousands, of evenings when I've done that. So you had, speaking of aging and all this uh, you know, youth versus older um, ages, you had a great story about uh, a young, high-level athlete that you were working with and your philosophy of training her and how she really turned on to that, You know, because you're training her like she's going to live past 40. Can you talk about that? Because I think that's another great share on the wisdom yeah, of well, aging. She was, um, she was 19. 19, okay. Um, had already acquired shoulder injuries from horseback riding accidents. Mm-hmm. The roller derby player. Oh, roller derby. That's funny. And she just locked right on to the idea of mastery. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't um, move past the point where she knew she might get hurt. Mm. Um, she was willing to spend the time necessary to... Um, to master the form of each exercise, to master the, the details, before she'd move on to weight. Great. And she, far and away, exceeded most adults in that capacity. Hmm. But I told her when I started with her that I'm going to train her as though I want her to live. 
as though she is going to live past 40. Right. Because a lot of the other athletes in there, <clears throat> it was a volleyball gym, um, and it had a, another, uh, like a strength and conditioning facility in there. Mm-hmm. And those athletes were trained as though they didn't expect them to live till tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these were high school girls, and every single one of them, there was hundreds of them, were all injured. It's ridiculous what's going on. I, I put up a post about this last week. Uh, American College of Sports Medicine had a brief they put up, and it was about youth sport injuries. It's crazy what's going on. It, it's child abuse, in my opinion. I mean, you, you've got youth athletes playing more games per year than Division One, basically young adult athletes. It's, it's, it's all about the money, and that's all it's about. You know, cause it, because the leagues and the coaches are all making all this money about, you know, the kids are running around playing year-round one sport. It's just madness. Well, good for her. And, and, and uh, she had parents that wouldn't listen, but she listened. That was the other part of the story, if I remember right. Yeah, well, they wouldn't listen to her. I mean, <laughs> um, I was uh, working at it. was at a CrossFit gym, mm-hmm. and I was attempting to subvert the CrossFit message one person at a time. <laughs> um, and both her parents did CrossFit. Uh-huh. Um, and they were athletic people, but they were both hurt. Of course. Yeah. And I, you know, I said, well, why don't you see if you can slip this into their world? I mean, start working with them. And she said she's tried, but they wouldn't listen. Mm. And they were both in their 40s. Mm-hmm. But her dad was sidelined from an injury, and her mom was sidelined from an injury. <clears throat> and all her injuries got better. I mean, I started out with her... Um, she was pretty weak, mm-hmm. and by the time we finished six weeks later, she was uh, deadlifting her body weight plus half. Wow. She was doing body weight farmer carries. She could do five pull-ups and ten push-ups, and her shoulders got better because we incorporated restorative methods that you're, um, you're real good at. We started using Indian clubs every day and doing some crawling. I actually had her crawl uphill backwards. That's great. Yeah. For a month. And mm-hmm. then we tested her pressing strength after that without having pressed the whole month. Mm-hmm. And it went up by about 10 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> well, what she was doing, I mean, I learned, when, uh, I learned this from one of my mentors, that, that you should train. This comes out of history, and it's a, it's a big take-home point if you're smart enough to pay attention to the old guys today. Train with 90% perfection. For the most part. So when I'm training, that's what I'm shooting for. And sometimes I'm a little under, but I modify very quickly. So it's like, well, how can you have 90% perfection all the time? That's unrealistic. No, it's not if you're smart enough to know how to do it, which is called regression. You keep stepping it down, making it easier until you can find that spot where you get 90% perfection. And yeah, and you got to get the ego out of the way before you do that. So that for some people, that might mean, hey, I just got to walk around the block. You know, forget about 85% of my VO2 max or whatever, you know. Um, that's my 90% perfection because I know I can control that fairly reasonable, you know. Um, and, I mean, the, if you get someone who's absolutely obsessed with going faster and doing more mm-hmm. um, and have them do a 30-second kettlebell deadlift, mm. 10 seconds from the ground up, 10 seconds at the top, and 10 seconds back down. Mm-hmm. They all of a sudden understand the impact and the intensity of slow motion movement. Yeah, people oftentimes use speed to cover up compensation and what isn't working well. But when you slow down, that's when you start uh, noticing the minutia of it and the details. And as one of my mentors also told me, the historical methods work so well because of the nuance. So you always want to be looking at those little things, because if they said put their pinky here and have your foot here, there was a reason for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that to be true. And you take something like the Indian clubs you mentioned, Michael. I mean, that I, I remember spending, uh, I, I don't know how many years I'd been doing, you know, a couple, three years of, you know, the basic Indian club patterns. And I was working with Dr. Ed Thomas uh, with Shane Hilton in North Dakota a couple years ago, and I asked uh, Ed, I go, can you look at my basic pattern and kind of let me know where I'm at? And he, he, and in about five seconds, he goes, yeah, you're about 50% there. And you can ask Shane Hilton if you don't believe me. <laughs> I looked at him and almost fell on the ground. I was like, 50% there? I've been doing these for years. But he picked up on a wrist position that was out of place for me, which it was a total compensation for my shoulders. It kicked my shoulders out of position. So 
it was such a small thing, but it was huge. And I realized then that I needed to go back to the one-pound clubs because I had, quote-unquote, progress to the two-pound clubs, which is actually stupid. It was stupid because I was physically illiterate. I didn't understand. Okay, I hadn't been exposed to enough information. So you can let your ego get in the way and walk away and keep doing the same stupid crap, or you can make some changes. And I decided to swallow my pride and my ego and go back to one-pound clubs. And, and Shane did the same thing, if you ask him. And so we learned a lot that day in terms of just not getting ahead of ourselves. So often, you know, people, if you think of 1 to 10, they want to go to 10 right away, and they don't even know 1. And what I found is that, um, and the masters will say this too, the deeper you get into the fundamentals, the more layers you realize of the fundamentals that there are. And this happens to me all the time, Michael. Things that I've done thousands of times, I'll do and I'll think about it and I'll realize, wow, there's another, there's another layer here that I didn't see the last 10 or 20 years. And it wasn't a fancy pet trick, it was just the fundamental stuff. And so the fundamentals are so important, but in the industry today, they've been largely blown off, and we've got all this uh, Hollywood sexy, you know, BS out there that's it's just so destructive. Um, I, something came to mind when you were talking about uh, CrossFit, and if you want, we can get into that. If you really want to piss some people off today, I'm I'm fine with that. But yeah, I'll tell you, the legal team doesn't come after us. <laughs> well, whatever. Um, I've had my issues with Glassman already, so. Um, uh, I was training, uh, doing a MoveNet workshop, Power and Agility MoveNet workshop, two-day workshop. It wasn't a certification, just an educational workshop, but, which, by the way, I really enjoyed. I thought they had a good program, and they laid it out well. I had a lot of fun. And it was at a CrossFit gym in Burbank, and uh, we were doing a little kind of functional circuit. And in between, there was a little bit of waiting uh, while the, the other group finished. And so the instructor said, hey, well, I want you guys to be busy while you're waiting. So he had us get down and do a plank. I mean, just a, a plank. So for people who don't know what a plank is, you're basically face down on the ground with your forearms on the ground. You're just holding a, like a straight plank-like position. I was clearly the oldest one there. And I was in there with a lot of CrossFit people because it was a CrossFit gym. And the other instructors were in their mid-30s, you know, late 20s. I was the only one that could hold a proper plank over 30 seconds without getting out of position. It was really interesting to me because um, if you looked at what these guys could do versus me, Michael, they were quote-unquote stronger. Mm -hmm. They could do all kinds of stuff I couldn't do, but the fundamentals weren't there. They couldn't even hold a basic fundamental plank. And then you wonder why there's so many injuries, whether it's CrossFit or boot camp or P90X or whatever it is at the high-volume, high-intensity level if you don't have the fundamentals. Um you know, I often describe this to my clients. You've got a brand new Corvette, and it's really fast. It doesn't have very good brakes on it. You know, eventually you're going to hit the wall. Well, I worked with an instructor, and we would sometimes work for two solid hours on kettlebell swings. Mm -hmm. Just breaking it down and doing every part of the movement over and over again, doing it slow, doing it fast. Um. And, it, and you could, like you said, uncover layers sure. upon layers upon layers of nuance that only show up when you do that kind of dedicated, focused work. Mm -hmm. And now we can go into the acquired ADD, <laughs> which, which is kind of my estimation of what's happened to the world. I mean, in... Um, and whenever it was the Lincoln-Douglas debate, mm -hmm. people sat and listened to two guys talk for eight hours for an entire week, <laughs> and they could recall at the end of the week points that were made at the beginning of the week. You know, we're just not as intelligent as we used to be. I'm, 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 I, I'm, I'm tempted to say I'm sorry to break everyone's bubble, but I'm actually not. I can tell you, you know, I, hundreds of times I've read things out of my old historical test on text on uh, PE and fitness. And they're talking about how basic they're laying this out. And it's like graduate-level stuff. If I bet graduate students couldn't even understand it. I mean, they were just so sophisticated. And the people that don't know history oftentimes scoff at the old stuff. You know, they're, they're just so ignorant. They have no clue what they're talking about. This stuff was very, very developed. We're not even close to where we were 100 years ago. Not even close. Well, across the board, too. I mean, their, their exactly. use of language, their ability. 
that period of time, and it's like, is this guy a professor or something? No, he's a professional strongman. Right. But he knows how to use the language. Handwriting alone, if we just get into the fitness or, you know, motor control of handwriting, it was so eloquent a hundred years mm -hmm. ago. Well, it's something you had to master. Right. You know, and, um, I was this is on the, uh, this is the plus side for young people. Mm -hmm. I used to train the dry land training for the swim and water polo teams at the Rose Bowl. Cool. And I asked a 10-year-old kid what he thought of Twitter and Facebook. Mm -hmm. And he looked up at me, he said, in my opinion, nothing has gone further to denigrate the quality of discourse than Twitter and Facebook. And he was 10? He was 10. I was in shock. Wow. <laughs> so... So what, my, my next question is, who are his parents, and where do they come from? Are they American, or do they come from another country? Yeah, they were from Pasadena. Wow, that's, uh, that's great. Yeah, and I, I thought, okay, so here's a 10-year-old that could smoke most 30- or 40-year-olds right. in any kind of uh, uh, rhetorical uh, discussion or argument. Mm -hmm. He possibly even understands what rhetoric originally was. Mm-hmm. He possibly understands the nature of a debate, hmm. not it, an argument. It's fascinating. You know, there, one of my uh, historical texts I was looking at last week, they taught people how to laugh. Mm -hmm. There's like 30 different ways to laugh. You know, oh, that's stupid. You should laugh how you... Well, you know, it, it's a type of movement, um, mm -hmm. and it was taught. Um, they taught people how to stand. They taught people how to walk. They taught people how to march. I mean, they taught people how to use body language with gestures. You know, if you think of Lincoln-Douglas debates or um, vocal delivery in the 1800s prior to PA, electronic PA, um, people had to know how to use their diaphragm. They, know, they needed to know how to use their mouth, uh, their yeah. tongue. I mean, these were all skills that were taught. I have a book from the 1850s about how to develop vocal delivery by the person who taught Ralph Waldo Emerson and Alexander Graham Bell how to speak. He was mm -hmm. the guy. And I've thrown that book over to a couple of musician friends of mine, and they, they just blew it off. Like, you have no idea what's in that book. You want to sing like, you know, you're the best uh, vocalist in the world? The, the secrets are in that book. Mm -hmm. You know, because if you can do that without a PA, trust me, the, the PA is not going to hurt you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I have a friend that um, he was a bass player in a heavy metal band, mm -hmm. um, and he realized at one point that there was a certain operatic quality to the singers' voices in metal bands, mm. and so he started studying opera mm -hmm. to improve his singing in his band. Cool, and he's now a, a semi-professional opera singer. <laughs> <laughs> so he kind of dropped heavy metal. That's funny. Wow. Well, I have heard of um, people in the kettlebell world getting more VO2 max, you know, more cardiovascular fitness and singing better. Mm -hmm. So um, that makes sense, you know. Now, you train, um, you train in a 24-hour fitness a box gym yeah. uh, setting, and we've had some funny discussions about um, your alternative, if you will, training methods compared to the general gym crowd. You want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I, when I go in there, I'll usually, I was doing Turkish get-ups with a shoe on my hand once, mm -hmm. just for balance and control and to keep the, all the lines straight. And at the time, there were a couple of marginally good trainers there. One guy walked by and he said, I'm not even going to ask. And like two minutes later, he came back. He goes, okay, I'm going to ask. What the hell are you doing? Good for him. It was great, and there was yeah. a couple of them there that were really interested. One woman, well, when I left the gym and then came back about six months later, she said, oh, God, I'm so glad you came back. I haven't learned anything in six months. <laughs> and I thought, well, okay, that's on you. But <laughs> I would, you know, I would bring stuff into them, and these two people would always, always, always look into what I brought in. I'd that's say, hey, wonderful. Check out this website or check out this guy or take a look at this. Mm -hmm. And they would always do it. Um, the current crop of trainers, I mean, I'll bring Indian clubs in there. I brought wands in there. Mm -hmm. um, I used to bring my own kettlebell before they had kettlebells. Mm -hmm. um, and nobody in there would even give it a passing glance. It was almost like they'd whistle as they walked past so they wouldn't have to look at what I was 
It's an ego thing. None of the trainers had any sort of intellectual curiosity about it. I mean, if I was in a gym and I saw somebody playing with Indian clubs, I'd go talk to them. Yeah. You know, one of the things I learned from Dr. Thomas, uh, who's who's arguably, you know, the top physical educator in the country and military training expert, he said, mm-hmm. um, when you when you find someone that's interesting to study or they're they're worth looking at, always ask yourself who trained them. And so, um, you know, oftentimes I'm in the park, and, and once in a while people will come up and they'll, they'll actually ask me, um, you know, what you're doing. I think it's a wonderful sign because I'm happy to talk about it. And, and I have found myself, if there's someone doing a movement or a skill that is interesting, I'm much more apt now to go up and say, you know, what are you doing? And then ultimately I'll ask him, where did you train? Who trained you? Now that's what people don't ask me. Mm-hmm. They'll ask me what I'm doing. But I don't know if I've ever had anybody ask me, well, who trained you? And that's really the deeper question, because if, if you ask that enough times, you'll get back to ancient Greece. Um, but that would be an interesting question for people to ask me, because I've trained with some really fascinating people over the last 20 years. And, and, well, and, and so many of them, as you know, are off the grid. Nobody would know who they were, but they're the best of the best. I mean, in the martial arts world, mm-hmm. the lineage right. is always extremely important. Sure. I mean, <clears throat> the, um, there's an art called Kajakembo, which I trained in. It's a Hawaiian art. Mm-hmm. And each and every one of those people were extremely proud mm. of their lineage mm-hmm. and their, you know, the order that um, they were on the on the ladder of descendancy. Mm-hmm. You know, like this person trained directly under the guy who started the art. Mm-hmm. And this person trained directly under that person, so he had access to that kind of uh, um, uh, linear progression. Well, this is um, uh, this is the advantage of aging. I mean, the title of the show is Cranky Old Guys and What They Know, and what we've learned from being over 50. And how old are you, Michael? You're 60? 61. Yeah, you're 61. I'm 57. So what we've learned being this age is to get out of our own way. I didn't really start learning at an accelerated pace until about the last five years. And that was a turning point for me when I I realized, you know, I really don't know what I thought I knew. And I had a master's degree. I had all kinds of certifications. I mean, I I could go on and on and on about stuff that doesn't matter, you know. And what I realized is that I really didn't know what I thought I knew. Uh And that's when the learning was like hitting the, the Knox button on the Corvette. It just pressed me back in the seat and peeled my face off, you know. (laughs) And then I realized, hey, I'm just now becoming a a good beginner, meaning that I I have enough foundational knowledge now to pick something up and start doing something and feel my way through it and actually make some fairly intelligent decisions about micro-adjustments. And this is happening more and more often now. And so, yeah, that's that's the advantage of getting older and hanging in there and, and why you should listen to people that are you know, over 50, or they've been in the business over 20 years. You know, there's a lot of people that have been in the business 5 or 10, but you really need about, to me, you know, about 20 years of of being in the trenches to figure out some foundational information. Years ago, you weren't even expected to know what you wanted to do with your life until you were 40. Right. I mean, you spent that whole time up, up until then just learning and processing that's another thing people don't do. They they learn like computers, or mm-hmm. you, you would equate most people's knowledge to a donkey carrying a load of books. Mm-hmm. There's um, there's no processing of the information. You know, in ancient Greece, in one period, they uh, educated people until the age of fifty, and then at the age of fifty, you could begin to become a real leader. You know, and we talk about compartmentalization of people today. Well, by the time you're 50 in, in this culture, people toss you aside. Well, hell, that's just when you're starting to figure it out, you know. Um, and so we're really missing a lot of opportunity because there are a lot of uh, people over the age of, you know, 40, 45, 50 that are very vibrant. And it's taken but that they long. they don't look good in bikinis. They don't look good in bikinis. Some people do. Um and they have a lot of information. It just takes a long time to assimilate that, whether you're talking about fitness or other things. So that's kind of a cultural thing, but it does play into the world of fitness, especially um, a fitness world today, at least in the States, is very 
physique superficial focused and uh, even airbrush focused. You know, if you're going to be 25 and talking about six pack abs, you know, forget the airbrush, just show us what you got. You know, I, I ran into this. Uh, there was a woman doing a boot camp, roughing a boot camp at a park. And I went over to chat with her, and she was really kind of huffy about who she was. <laughs> almost upset that I didn't know who she was. Uh huh. And her qualifications evidently were that she had over 11,000 Instagram followers. <laughs> and you should have her talk uh, to that 10 year old in Pasadena. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I, I watched her train, and she was absolutely awful. Of course, yeah, yeah. And I went to her Instagram page then to see what the, you know, why she had 11,000 Instagram followers, and probably 60 to 70% of all the pictures were her either in her underwear or her bathing suit. Oh, sure. That's an easy way to get some followers, you know, absolutely. Yeah, I almost told her, well, you probably realize most of your Instagram photos are followers are 50-plus guys. <laughs> <laughs> And hey, I'm phys- not looking at it because you want to, they want to be like you. Yeah, physique is surely part of it, um, but it but it should not be all of it. And that's that's coming out of history. It's just not my personal opinion based on what I've mm-hmm. learned. But that's that's a, a clear message out of history. If you study it long enough or at any level, you'll see that it it's got to be more than just that because we'll be worm food soon. Uh-huh. You know, airbrush or well, not. Well, if you look at people like I mean, um, you know who Odd Hogan is, right? Uh, I think you mentioned him. Why don't you go ahead and... and yeah, he's a, a strong man. The strong man, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. That's a place called the Training Hall. It's actually in Newberry Park, mm-hmm. right near you. Mm-hmm. And if you saw the guy walking down the street, you'd say, hey, he's pretty big. Mm-hmm. Most people would probably think he was just big and fat and out of shape mm. until you shake his hand. <laughs> and then he crushes you like you were an insect. And he's almost 70, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the, uh, I forget who said it, but they said, do you want to look strong or be strong? You know, that brings up a point. I, um, I'm i also a photographer. I've done some professional photography. And one of my friends is, a is I think, one of the best photographers in the world. And he was, he was telling me about a, a bikini shoot that he did and how weak um, the women were. And I've heard this from other people in the fitness industry, too, that are on set for um, bikini fitness shoots where the models are so weak in their core that they can't sit in a stability ball, which is a big round ball, if you don't know that. And they have to kind of hide behind the ball, embrace the ball so they don't fall off. And so it's all show. But um, it kind of reminds me of the CrossFit trainers when I was doing the MoveNet uh, class. They couldn't hold a 30-second plank, and they were you know, out of position and whining. And it's like, I'm, I could have been their father and I was sitting there and it's like, you know, I could have been smoking a cigar doing it, you know, having a nice brandy. I mean, it was, it wasn't even like, uh, it was just so well, easy for me to do because I focused on the, the quality of that. Yeah. And just speaking to what they focused on, if you go to CrossFit website, mm-hmm. what you'll see a lot is, they have look better naked challenges. Mm. And that's all they want to do. Mm-hmm. They don't want, they don't have like be strong as an ox challenges. Mm. They don't have become a functional human being challenges. Um, they have look better naked challenges. I'm down with that if you're a better person too. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it very rarely goes together though. Right, right. Well, what, yeah, it's interesting how we how we look at this so um, superficially, and I do some shirtless stuff too. And I think you know part of that is important for people to see, like, okay, this guy's fifty seven years old; he's fairly trim, you know, moves pretty well. But this, you know, as you as you age, you realize that just looking better naked is so superficial, and and, and then you the, the the thing called pain comes into the play. And you realize, yeah. like, as you said, with your swim coach's advice, you know, you better start training differently by the time you're 35 to deal with what you did prior to 35. Um, and then it well, becomes about quality of movement. When, What's that? Looking better naked once you get past 40. Right. It's, it's harder to do. Mood. Because <laughs> nobody's going to want to see you naked anyway. <laughs> yeah. So for any guys that are listening to this, take advantage of 
opportunities as they arise up until and including 40. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely hard to do after 40. However, it can be done. Uh, and I think too, you know, having a, a, a bigger view of the world and, and life and aging and all that, you, you realize that, you know, a lot of that is so temporal and you get more okay with everything not being perfect. Um, and just doing the best you can with what you have. I mean, there are some people in the wellness industry, if you want to call it that, that think that aging's a disease and I've never bought into that crap. Um, I, I think that's, that can sometimes, uh, really trip people up and then they don't, they don't live well because they're trying to fight something that they really are never going to win at, you know. Well, uh, Chip Conrad at Body Tribe, mm-hmm. Sacramento. Yeah, he said aging is a choice, and if you make better choices now, you'll have more choices later. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was just a perfect way to put it. Yeah, Chip's a good guy. He's he's a person to pay attention to because he knows the history, but he's also hip and down on the you know the if you want to call the latest methods and. He's a pretty strong guy, but he also moves really well, and I like watching what he's doing. He's one of the yeah, few people that I actually recommend. Chip yeah, Conrad, um, he's going to be coming down here to do a lecture with Dan John. Cool. Uh, on May 13th. Okay. We'll get the word out about that. That's uh, 2017, May 13th, Southern California. Two, yeah. Two top training coaches. You can coaches. get all the registry information on mental meatheads. Mental meatheads, all right. We'll be posting that stuff up for sure. Cool. But, uh, if we, uh, when you were talking about young people just not really having a clue, there was uh, Mark Twain. Mm-hmm. I think it was Mark Twain said that uh, when he was 20 years old, he had a hard time believing that his father could walk and breathe at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he turned 25, he was absolutely shocked at how intelligent the old man had become in five years. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. And that's, you know, that's the prefrontal cortex. It doesn't develop fully until you turn 25. Yeah, you know, my twins are 13, so trying to reason with them now is fairly interesting, you know, and and, and they're starting to pay attention, but they're still, you know, in that tween kind of age and everything's goofy and a prank. And uh, um, I had a, a client in San Francisco, and I was trying to teach her how to use the, the rower. Mm-hmm. She just wasn't getting it. And I got increasingly frustrated with her. <laughs> so I finally said, just, will you just pay attention? Mm-hmm. And she just stopped. And I looked at her, and she looked at me, and I said, okay, to myself, that there goes my job. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know that I'm a teacher? And I said, yeah. And she goes, that every day, thousands of times, I say those words, pay attention. Mm-hmm. You know how long it's been since someone said that to me? Really? And, yeah, I looked at her. I said, well, judging by your performance on the rower, I think a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily for me, she laughed. Um, <laughs> but it was just, I mean, it was, just, it was uh, just like a real basic movement pattern. Right. And she couldn't focus long enough to put two parts of it together. I believe that. You know, I coach running, and uh, I'll just take one thing out of running. Uh, arm motion from the shoulder. I mean, this is a really fundamental, basic concept to running efficiently. And it is incredibly difficult to get people to do that. I can work with people over and over and over, and I'm very, very, very good at breaking things down and finding that, you know, that simple point for them to start, no matter what their age, ability, disability, or whatever. And it, I, I think I attribute it to physical illiteracy. People just have such a, they're just not kinesthetically aware of their bodies in motion. Even athletes today, they've never been taught these things that were taught 100 years ago. And right. it's really challenging to get somebody to move from the shoulders and not move from the elbows, and then to move in a linear way. And we're just doing uh, drills, which are just straight up and back, you know, the running form drills. Um, so we're going to make it pretty linear, you know, at that fundamental uh, level. And it's very difficult. And people, <laughs> I feel like you at the rotary is like, uh, are you listening to me or, but I think a lot of times they're, they're listening, but they, they just can't, they can't feel it. And to the point where I'll just say, stop, stand up straight, tall, 
relax well, they, your arm, they, and I'm going to move their, your arm for you. You know. Mm-hmm. They let their brains get in the way. They try to analyze things. That's one of the, I think, one of the big problems with adults is they do what um, I think it was Bonnie Pruden that called it adulticizing. Mm-hmm. Where they, um, they're they're so analytical. They right. Do sit, sit them in a room and say, "Hey, how about uh, for the next five minutes, you guys just play." They mm-hmm. can't do it. Right. Well, there's there, no capacity. Yeah, there is a point where you know to, and I did my master's thesis on sport and exercise performance <clears throat> psychology, so we can talk about that a minute because there's a there's a thing called flow state. And when you're in a state of flow, you lose consciousness of time and ego, and that's the sweet spot. That's the zone that athletes talk about, and that's what we all want. We're we're just you can't do anything wrong. You're in that ninety percent perfection plus, you know, and everything feels great. And uh, hopefully, everyone experiences that in life um, physically at some point, you know. And it's even better, to, in my opinion, in competition because I've had that in cycling and running. Um, but it, it's kind of like some of the martial artists will talk about, uh, no form, form, no form. So when you begin your martial arts training, you don't know what the form is. And then you realize what the form is. And that's when you're very analytical. And then at the end, when you become more of a master at the, the fundamentals, there is no form cause you're just flowing through it. It's so I'm, I'm into that realm with some of the movements I do now, Michael, where I'm, I'm aware of what's going on. But I'm not overanalyzing it to the point where I can't move or I move mechanically. And this right. brings up another point that I think, you know, you and I have discussed too, is a lot if we just take the Indian clubs, for example. Um so many of the people today have, have in my opinion, have bastardized those. There's no mojo in the movement. It's so mm-hmm. clinical and it's so mechanical, it's like, um, oh, I just want to go to sleep. I'm not doing it. And I'm watching what they're doing. It's like I don't want to move like you. And I'm not. I'm not paying attention to what you're talking about because I can watch you for five seconds, and there's just no mojo there. It's there's there's no flow. It's it doesn't look good, and it doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. And that there's an aesthetic quality of movement. When you're doing a movement well, it should also look good. Mm-hmm. And whether you look at Olympic powerlifting or you know running or swimming, and the greatest athletes of all time, and I always think of Michael Jordan. You know, he just. He just made it look so easy. They're in that flow state, and they're not straining. You know. Oh, I went out to a, a track meet um, at a college once just to watch people run. And the really good runners, they didn't so much run as float. Right. They just—it was almost as if the ground was moving by underneath them rather than them moving past the ground because they were just—you know—they were so effortless. Gravity. We can talk about that a little bit because that's if if someone was smart enough to ask me, okay, Ron, you've been in the business a long time, you you know a few things. What are a com- what are a couple of the major points that you think everyone should know? And I would say gravity right up front. So w- when you look at, um, especially over a hundred years ago, and of all the off the ground training they did, they really understood gravity and how to work with gravity. And if you don't understand gravity, it's going to work against you. But when I'm coaching running, I put a lot of uh, my knowledge of um, classical physical education and Swedish gymnastics in particular because they were so good at this anti-gravitational approach to movement and training, even when on the ground. That's a huge point, Michael, because if you're running heavy as a runner, you're done. Yeah. And so when I'm, it doesn't matter if I'm working with kids in running or I'm working with adult clients our age. I'm coaching them how to feel light in their feet and to understand gravitational force. Because I've I've trained with heavier runners, you know, Clydesdale-type runners that are 200 pounds plus that run light. So there's a way to do it, but it gets back into technique and, and the nuance and the form. And if you put all that together, you know, I've been doing a lot of stair repeats lately and helping a few people on that. And you can float up the stairs, steep stair repeats, if you know how to run properly with good mechanics. Well, was it you that posted that um, that book on how Indians ran? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, it's called uh, Growing Straight, The Secrets of the American Indian or something like that. Yeah, it was written in 1934. Um, it's the only book I know of that was written on Native American fitness and movement. 
in particular. The whole book is on that. And so their whole thing is really interesting. Their whole philosophy of movement was based on relaxation. Mm-hmm. And um, and they were very, very upright, but without that, uh, I hate to say this, but this is how people think of it, the military posture that's stiff, right? Right. Um, so, But they understood gravity, absolutely, and they were big on gait mechanics. And there's some things in the book I still don't understand. It's a, it's actually a pretty interesting read. They did some things on inversion, you know, uh, to, you know, reposition organs at night before they slept. And mm-hmm. um, But if you think about Native Americans, um, the, the picture of the Native American brave in the woods doing whatever they're doing, mm-hmm. um, moving silently. And moving well with uh, this relaxed flow, if you will, um, and doing that into older ages as well. They had it figured out. We just yeah. stepped all over it and threw it out in our infinite white European wisdom. <laughs> and now, now, you know, you know, hundreds of years later, we're trying to figure out, you know, uh, like one percent of what they did and why they did it. But there, there were surely um, sophisticated in terms of. You know, because in, in those days, I mean, you know, if you got hurt, that you could be done. <laughs> yeah. There, there was no nice ER hospital to go to. So the evolution of movement was fairly sophisticated, you know, by by uh, necessity, if you will. And default. It was just what you grew up with. Right. Exactly. And you're, um, we're both old enough to remember, you know, kids in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And you were not in front of a computer. No. Yeah, we got into this with the Los Sierra High School physical education program research, which I'm a part of. And, you know, a lot of people have asked when they see the historic film, like, oh, the boys had eight packs, not just six packs, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, was that all just the football team? And interestingly, the those pictures and film that we have up currently, mm-hmm. um, that's the general population at Los Sierra. And what was pretty much a middle class uh, uh, white Anglo suburb of Sacramento. In the early 1960s, there was some, you know, upper class and lower class, but it was basically kind of a, a middle class neighborhood, and that's um, that's just how the boys looked. Now they didn't come in that fit, of course, but um, you know, of course, you didn't have obesity like you do now then, and they were just more physically active. Period. Right, and they didn't walk in the door out of shape, just not as good a shape. Right. Right. But, you know, that was the general population, and wow, how far we've fallen, you know. <laughs> we didn't listen to JFK's warnings of uh, becoming a nation of spectators instead of participants in the vigorous life, you know, which is exactly what he warned us to not do, but that's, that's where we're at. asked me the other day if I, what I thought about the concept of old man strength. Mm-hmm. And I told him, effective immediately, it no longer exists. Mm-hmm. Because the old men now are people our age who grew up in the suburbs. Right. And never really had access to a physically active body. This is another... They actually took pains to go out and find it. Right. This is another conversation Michael and and I have had over the last couple years, the old man strength of yesteryear. I remember my Mm -hmm. grandfather in his 70s could still take a bottle cap between his thumb and index finger and bend it in half. And he was, I remember he was very, very proud of that. Like, it, and, and he was a guy that, you know, drank bourbon and smoked filterless camels his whole life, you know, mm-hmm. and never, I don't remember the guy ever exercising. That's before you know? drink and smoke was bad for you. Yeah. He would work in his garden and he fished, you know, and, and then he was a working guy. And, but man, he had the grip, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. I can't do that. I don't care how many kettlebell swings I do. You know? I mean, yeah. you should try well, that sometime, you know. like that too. Hmm. The garbage man. Wow. And, you know, he used to come over to our house at 70, and all the kids would sit there in awe as he would lift our upright piano off the ground. Wow. Um, but then the sad part of that story is when he retired, mm-hmm. he died within five years. Oh, yeah. You know, people oftentimes retire uh, and die within 18 <coughs> months now. It's a very short, uh, you know, when they stop, they stop, and they're done. Of course, they're sitting around watching television, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, my well, grandfather. I retired when I was 24. So. 
So to bring the show kind of uh, towards the end here, you know, as we look at the fitness industry and we're over 50 now, um, what can we say for people over 40? Because I'm, you know, I don't know how many people under 40 are willing to listen, but I think the people over 40 will. Uh, and what have we learned of high value? And I'll just start. I'll throw a couple things into the circle here. Um, okay. The value of restorative arts is really critical, and that was a— content area of classical physical education that involved teaching people posture and safety of movement and quality of movement and the fundamentals. So at this point in my life and career, that's when I'm very focused on teaching people. It's not that I still don't do some high-intensity interval training and endurance and strength and all that, but there's there's so many sharks in the water on that. I just I don't care to play those games anymore. But what I've realized just from an ethical standpoint is that there isn't anyone that I couldn't work with that could not benefit from the restorative arts, whether it's Olympians and pro athletes, which I've worked with both in my career, or uh, people with disabilities and wheelchairs. I've also worked with them, children, adults, corporate people, doesn't matter. Everyone can benefit from those methods and tools because they help people move better, and they do help people age better, and they're wonderful for people over 40 especially who have lost shoulder mobility, spinal mobility, they're in pain from largely being out of alignment and doing too much with poor mechanics oftentimes. Take the weight out of it. Let's just figure, we're not even going to talk about that right now. Just the quality of movement is so poor, and it has been for so long. And it's not really their fault per se because we stopped teaching that decades ago. So if you want to blame someone, you're going to have to start blaming your grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents because they're the ones that screwed up and let it fade away. And that goes back to about 1920. (laughs) So those people are all dead, so we can bitch and moan all we want to, but they're gone anyway. But um, that's that's what I, the message I want to get out today. Um, If you're trying to figure this out, pay attention to that and the people that are doing it. Um, do you have anything you want to add to that? Well, the message I want to get out is just pay attention, period. <laughs> um, <clears throat> there's, you know, the what you're doing is not working, mm-hmm. then you have to do something else. But you have to be paying attention enough to know that. Mm-hmm. And we had mentioned this just a little bit the other day, the idea that, uh, oh, at least they're doing something. Oh, yeah, let's talk about that. Just do yeah, something. Yeah, and the idea of at least they're doing something is kind of a, a participant ribbon for adults. Yeah, and it's part of the problem, too, you know. Yeah, it's a huge problem because at least they're doing something is just not good enough, and you have to kind of take responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. And people who ignore that or don't take responsibility are incredibly selfish people because right. what they do and what they don't do has implications far beyond just their body. It affects their family. It affects the people they work with. It affects everything around them. Gross national product, you know, how viable we are in the global economy. You know, we've lost so many jobs in America, quite frankly, because the companies can't afford the insurance for all these unhealthy people. So, you know, if you want to get to root cause, I mean, we've got to get um, people healthy and resilient so they can become good quality employees that aren't costing the employer an arm and a leg and their profit margins fly out the window. So it's nice to see um, a little bit of resurgence here to get jobs back in America, and I hope that works. But I know as a a historical kinesiologist and physical education person that that's all a bunch of hot air uh, if we can't have an employee that can stay in the job without getting hurt and being on multiple medications and you know, running up the insurance costs, health costs, because of poor lifestyle choices. It's just, mm-hmm. it's not going to work. You know, uh, gotcha. you just can't make as much money with somebody. You know, if you're a diabetic, you're five times more like, uh, five times more expensive to treat as an employee. I was sitting at a high-level corporate meeting for a major billion-dollar company, and uh, one of the people from Fidelity Investments was there, and that's what he told us at the table. So that's a lot of motivation to keep people from flipping the switch on diabetes. You know, just think about that. You're 25 years old and coming in and getting hired, and you're already a diabetic, which most many people are. Mm-hmm. You're going to cost that company five times as much money? Are you kidding me? 
How can people afford that? Right. Well, they can't. Well, and that, and and hence we're you know we got a lot of people working at McDonald's. You know, we're not making a lot of stuff here anymore. So, yeah, I think um, you know the restorative methods. You know, so what are those? Wow, you know, it could be body weight movements that are very. Um, helping you move in a more natural way. It could be the wand, which is a long staff or stick. That was a very popular tool pre-1920. The Indian clubs, which look like small wooden bowling pins, if you will, that used all kinds of circular spiral figure eight patterns. Mm -hmm. It can be using gravity with uh, certain types of bars and ropes and things. And I'm not talking about the crazy, you know, uh, boot camp fitness challenge you know the bizarre mud run stuff going on today i'm just i'm talking about using these tools in a restorative way um and, and simplifying things and simple I yeah at the fundamentals absolutely someone could probably get a whole lot more out of hanging from a bar for 30 seconds three times a week than they could get out of a crossfit workout <laughs> hey i had people in corporate health um and and that would come in every day and I taught them how to hang properly in a bar. And that was part of their back pain prevention <clears throat> protocol. They would come in every day on their break and they would hang for about 30 seconds. And you know, that's something that seems so stupid and ridiculous. I was, well, what's that going to do? You know, there's a whole technique to hanging on a bar and using breath to let go and really elongate and stretch. And it's very uh, exploratory if you get into that. And I spent a lot of time teaching people how to hang in a relaxed way using breath to open up and stretch out and open up joint space. And it's a good thing to know how to do. Uh, well, if, they took, I mean, if you took somebody and had them hang from the bar for 30 seconds, get up and down off the ground 10 times, mm -hmm. and balance on one foot for 10 seconds, that would be a sound basis for a good program for most people. You know, if they did that right, that's probably better than 95% of the fitness people are doing. Right. <laughs> Sad but true, right? And it's hard to sell unless we can figure out a way to brand it. That's <laughs> That'll be the next show. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll do some more shows. This is kind of a general uh, throw the gauntlet out there for what, what we've learned after being in the business for decades and being <laughs> over 50 ourselves. Um and in my final words, like, you know, anybody can be fit and look good at 25. But when you're doing this over 50, those are the people to pay attention to. Right. And that came from another guy that I've done a lot of work with. And he's like, we're Petri dish experiments, you know, because there are very few people that aren't just fit at 50 plus, but they're also moving well. And that's the key. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just how they look. Can they do some basic fundamental movements pretty well and look good doing it? And I'm not talking about look good from a, a cosmetic standpoint. I mean, just a flow standpoint and a, a coordination um, and yeah. a balance and control uh, perspective. Oh, yeah, that's one other thing I wanted to mention. There was a book that came out, I think, um, early 80s mm -hmm. called Body, Mind, and Sport mm -hmm. by a guy named John Dillard. Mm. And um, he kind of used Ayurvedic body typing techniques mm -hmm. to place people in different pursuits hmm. and had a huge rate of success with that mm -hmm. because all of a sudden people were doing things that they were naturally good at. Hmm. And also he talked a lot about the flow state. Cool. And he was the first person to ever mention um, self-limiting training, which is where you breathe through your nostrils mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. until you can't anymore and then you stop. Hmm, interesting. And then recover, mm -hmm. and then go again. Um, that idea is put forth now by uh, Greg Cook and Pavel and mm -hmm. other people, but John DeYard was the first one I met, so I saw it mentioned. That. Hmm. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, Michael, and uh, we'll do some more work, and we'll get into some more uh, specific topics. You know, we might break yeah, down well, a, you, a certain type of movement or a certain type of tool from our perspective as people being 50-plus. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and you know, the people that know us, um, we're not catering to 50-plus people. I mean, my focus has been my whole career general population. I don't care what mm -hmm. age and level or ability people are at. Um, but the people under the bell curve, that's that's where I'm at because that's where I can do the most amount of good. Mm -hmm. But we'll get into more of that later. So thanks for being on the show, man. Thanks for having me.
You've been listening to Lean Braves Radio Show at theleanbraves.com. Until next time, keep moving for a noble purpose, no excuses, no age requirement. <laughs>